You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, October 25th, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. 1 Samuel chapter 20, that's where we're going to be this morning. As you're headed there, let me pray for us in our time together in God's Word. Father, we ask this morning that you would continue to do the work by your Holy Spirit that you have promised to continue until the day you bring us to see you face to face, that you would continue to conform us into the image and likeness of your Son. This morning we ask that as we go through your word, that you would expose to us the glory of your faithfulness, the security of your steadiness, Lord, that we would find our hope, we would find our peace, we would find our safety in your goodness and in your faithfulness. Uh, We ask this morning that you would do that by your Spirit in our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's just a step between me and death. That's how David describes his life in his world as we pick up the story this morning. And here's what we know as we come together and open up God's Word this morning. We know at least this much that our world and and David's world, though separated by time and distance, are more similar and more alike than we may want to even recognize. Our world, like David's, can be a, a place of very real danger, a place of deep disappointment, a place of confusion, a place of betrayal, sadness, and sin. Microscopic viruses threaten our well-being. Elections and appointments, cancer diagnoses, injustices, gossip, slander, job loss, market depressions, on and on we could go. If we're really honest, we can get to the place in our own hearts where it feels like there's just a step between ourselves and death. Security safe harbor in the midst of an insecure world feels elusive. And if we are honest, we may very well wonder if we have the endurance to keep going. I want us to come to this episode in David's life this morning with the perspective that Paul brings to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 15, when when Paul says, "...whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction." that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. My friends, in this portion of God's Word is buried for us the encouragement to endure and the very real hope for the security and peace that each of our hearts long for in a world of insecurity and uncertainty. And so as we open up our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20, let me just be upfront about this. It's a long story. It's a great story. 1 Samuel chapter 20 is actually the the closing part of a literary arc that starts in 1 Samuel chapter 18. 
In fact, it's not uncommon to teach or to preach or to come to this part of 1 Samuel and read and work through chapters 18 and 20 altogether as one unit because it begins the story of David being brought into the presence of King Saul and it begins to end in chapter 20 with David on the run from King Saul and how he went from being brought to his presence to running from him. The themes weave their way through those chapters and it's common to look at that one little narrative arc as a whole, but We've chosen to do it chapter by chapter, piece by piece, and I want you to know why, even though there are long stories. I've chosen to do it this way because I think if I, if I consider my own life and my own heart and think about us as a whole, one of the chief concerns I have is that you and I come to God's Word with a delight to hear and to see what God has for us in His Word. And some of these stories are so familiar that I don't actually think we've read them. We know the story, we know the big points, but have you actually read it? And I want you to read it and to hear it that you might come to love God's Word even more because it's an amazing story. If you read it and actually see it, it's better than anything we can turn on television. So part of me just wants you to see the beauty and the literary beauty of God's Word that you might be more eager to open it up, to read it, and to see what God has for you in His Word. And so this morning, we're going to go through this chapter, and we're going to do the best that we can. I'm going to do the best that I can by the aid of God's Spirit to help you see this story, to see the beauty in it, to understand some of what's going on, that we might come to see what God has for us in it when it comes to how you and I find security and peace in the midst of an insecure and uncertain world. And so as the story picks up in chapter 20, verse 1, David is on the run, fleeing for his life from King Saul, as we saw starting, Saul, as we saw starting last week. And it's going to be the thing that is going to be consistent for the rest of the book. Throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, David is going to be on the run. This is where it all comes to a head, and that really begins. So in verse 1, David fled from Ramah. He was with Samuel as chapter 19 came to an end in Ramah. And he came and he said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now a lot's happened since we last saw Jonathan. The last time we saw Jonathan was back at the beginning of, of chapter 19 when Jonathan went to his dad, to King Saul, to plead David's case on David's behalf. And you might remember, Saul listened to the words of Jonathan, and he said, I won't lay a hand on David. David is not going to die. And Jonathan went back to David and said, my my dad said, you're okay. And then Jonathan went back about the appointments that were his to do as prince. And we know as the rest of the chapter unfolded, Saul didn't keep his word. Over and over again, he sought to take David's life. And so here, as chapter 20 begins, David has made the dangerous journey back to Gibeah, back to Jonathan and Saul's hometown. He has gone into enemy territory because he's seeking answers. He's looking for answers. But I want us to take a moment and just consider the questions that he asks. What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin? Did you hear that? The thing he's first concerned with when it comes to the discord between he and Saul 
is what's he done to bring it about? He's been nothing but upstanding and loyal to Saul throughout the entire story. Yet in David, there is still a willingness that he has in his heart to have someone that he trusts point out his sin to him. So much so that in just a little bit, in David and Jonathan's conversation, you'll see it in a minute in verse 8, David says, if there's any guilt or sin within me, I'm willing to pay the price. This is staggering. This is a man who has been nothing but loyal and upright towards a man who's done nothing now in the last bit but seek to kill him. And his first concern is, what have I done? Where's my sin in the situation? And I don't want to move too quickly through the story and miss the moment to at least ask and allow you to ask yourself, how do you typically respond to mistreatment when you're wronged? How do you typically respond when someone misjudges you? speaks against you, wants to do harm to you, or has dealt harm to you. Friends, David can respond the way he does here in the story because his heart is resting in the goodness and steadfastness of a sovereign God. Apart from his heart being secured by who God is for him, his response can be shaped by nothing but fear. He could act as though he had to find any other refuge out there but the Lord. And the same holds true for you and I. When our hearts are resting deep in the enjoyment of God's grace towards us, we are free, even in moments like this, to respond differently. Ask yourself, how, how deep is your enjoyment of God's grace? If we were to look at the ways that you tend to respond to instances in your life when you are mistreated or misjudged or when harm is intended for you, how would your response reflect the depth of your enjoyment of God's grace towards you? I don't know if it's the actual background of the psalm. We don't get that information, but it'd be fascinating for you to take some time this week and And read Psalm 27 in light of this moment in David's life. When David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, if that's the case in my heart, if that's really who he is for me, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I really fear? If he he really is who he is for me, and if I really am to him what he has said, who am I supposed to be afraid of? David's intentions when he goes to Jonathan are staggering. But Jonathan says to him, verse 2, we've got to pick up the story. He says to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so, David. But we know something in the story. Jonathan's been out of the loop. David He vowed again in verse 3, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. Again, staggering if you think about it like a human. David says, Listen, Jonathan, your dad knows about the bond between us. He's cut you off. But he's cut you off, lest your heart be grieved. 
lest your heart hurt. Because he knows the bond between us. David is thinking something of the best about Saul in the situation. The natural thought is to think he's cut you off lest you get in the way and stop his plan to kill me again. No, he, David again, thinks the best of Saul in this situation. No, he's cut you off lest your heart be grieved. But truly, David says, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. And we pick up right here one of the central themes running through this entire narrative arc in chapters 18, 19, and 20. And that's the theme we've seen over and over again of covenant loyalty. The challenge in front of Jonathan is immense. We've seen over and over again, if he is to remain faithful to David, to keep his covenant with David, to keep his promise and his loyalty to David, he's going to have to say no to his family. Jonathan is going to have to discern for himself who who it is that's going to be king and what it's going to mean to submit. And I wonder, and and maybe in eternity we'll find out, it it certainly wouldn't be far-fetched to think that when Jesus was teaching in Luke chapter 14, and he said, if you want to be my disciple, anyone who wants to come after me and follow me, if you want to be mine, there can be no greater loyalty in your heart than your loyalty to me. If you want to be my disciple, you must be prepared to hate your mother, hate your father, hate your family. He's saying, if you want to be mine, if you're going to follow me, there can be no greater loyalty in your heart than your covenant loyalty to me, your king. This is what's happening in the decision before Jonathan right here in this moment. So the story as it picks up in verse 5, David has thought of a plan. A plan that, with Jonathan's help, will help to unveil or reveal before both of them Saul's intentions towards David. How can he know where Saul's heart is towards him at this point? Last time we heard of Saul, the Spirit of God had stopped him, stripped him naked, left him laying down on the ground prophesying. Has something in his heart changed? Did that do something in Saul? What's his intention towards David at this point? Well, David's got a plan to figure it out. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. That's the expectation. David's in Saul's court. The expectation is he's going to sit at the table for the festival. But here's the plan. Let me go, that I may hide myself in the field until the third day of the festival at the evening. If your father misses me at all, Then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If Saul says, good, then it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. So David's plan is simply this. He has set up a way to devise and to expose what Saul's intentions towards him are. His absence and Saul's response are going to help clarify it. If David's gone and Saul is angry, then we can understand that Saul has intentions towards David. If Saul's okay with it, then Saul's heart towards David is changed. So in verse 8, David says, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. 
David is reaching back to what we learned about in chapter 18 of this covenant that Jonathan initiated with David. Jonathan having recognized that God was indeed bringing salvation to his people through this man, the one who had gone between the armies on behalf of God's people and defeated the Philistine, that God was bringing salvation through this man. So Jonathan, the greater, the the prince, the crown heir to the throne, initiated a covenant with David, the shepherd boy. And in that covenant, as a sign of his commitment, he takes off the robe, the royal robe of his position, gives him the sword, his royal sword, his, his power. He hands them to David as a sign of covenant commitment. David is reaching back into that promise of commitment and loyalty. And he's saying here, deal kindly with me. You've, you've committed yourself to me before the Lord. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? Why wait and let him kill me? If I'm guilty, if it's my sin that's brought all this trouble about, then just go ahead and do it yourself. Go ahead and kill me. And Jonathan said, far be it from you. I, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? I mean, all along, I, if I knew that this is really what he wanted to do, don't you think in my commitment I would tell you? And again, we're seeing where, where Jonathan's loyalty really is. And in verse 10, David said to Jonathan, well, who will tell me if your father's an- father answers you roughly? It's a smart question on David's part. I don't think David is deeply doubting Jonathan's commitment. I think it's a smart question. Jonathan could have every intention in his heart to keep his covenant with David and go to his father and face an immense pressure from his father to not keep his promise to David. And if Jonathan in that moment gives in to that pressure, fails to keep his promise with David, tells his father of he and David's plans, How is David going to know that Jonathan crossed him in that? Or even worse, what if Jonathan goes to his father just as the plan has has been written? And Saul, knowing that there's a connection between Jonathan and David, what if he kills Jonathan? David doesn't know he's hiding out in the field. How will David know whether or not Saul has good or ill intentions towards him? How are you going to tell me It's a fair question. And it's here that I think, if again, you read it like a human, the seriousness of the situation. Maybe there's something in David's face. Maybe there's an intensity in his voice. Maybe there's a a resoluteness that sets in. You know, when the jaw gets set and someone's just resolved about something, there is something in David's person, in his being, in this conversation that makes the seriousness of the situation so clear to Jonathan. That Jonathan says, let's hold on a second. Stop, stop talking. We need to go from here, out here into the field where, where no one can hear this. We need to stop for just a second. Look at what he says, verse 11. Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. None of Saul's listening ears can hear them out there. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness." When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, 
The Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go into safety. That's that commitment to that covenant loyalty. That's that commitment we talked about last week when, when God cut a covenant with Abraham. And it was typical in the covenants of these days, they would take an animal and split it in half and separate the parts. And each party in the covenant would walk between the two halves of the animal, signifying, let it be done to me if I don't keep my end of the promise. This is what Jonathan is saying right here. Let it be done to me and more also if I don't keep my promise. But then he says something that's astounding. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. The one trying to kill you? The one we know the Spirit of the Lord has already left? The one we know the Lord said, I have rejected you as my king or my people? What Jonathan's saying here is something that's truly astounding. When he says, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, he is speaking back to the anointing of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord upon his father when he made him king. Jonathan is saying, may it be with you, may the Lord be with you as he was my dad, as he makes you king. Jonathan is recognizing and communicating what he sees the Lord's plan for David to be. And if you read it like a human, it's an astounding moment. He is the prince. He's the heir to the throne. You don't protect your rival for the throne. You get rid of him. But here in Jonathan, once again, we're truly seeing someone who is seeking first a kingdom that isn't his own. He's seeking first a kingdom that God is establishing through the one he's anointed. It's an amazing moment. And then listen to the faith of Jonathan here in this conversation. They're going to break from their plan. They're out in the field talking about the plan to discern Saul's intentions. But Jonathan, making this statement about the Lord being with David as he's been with his dad, confessing, as you become king, Jonathan's thoughts go somewhere else before they come back to the plan. Just listen. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Who's already trying to kill him? His dad. He's putting his dad into this category right here. There has seldom, if ever, been exhibited a finer instance of triumphant faith, wrote William Blakey, than when the prince with all the resources of the kingdom at his back, made this request of the helpless outlaw. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Preserve my house, my heritage. Keep reading the story. We won't get there this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 9, you'll find that David does keep this promise, this covenant commitment. When he discovers that there is a son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth, who was dropped at birth and became lame. David finds out that he is still alive, and David brings him into his house and seats him at his table and keeps this commitment that he makes here in the field to Jonathan. But it goes on, verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Even my dad, who has made himself such a man, 
And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. One writer said, the covenant between Jonathan and David has become the means for uncommon faithfulness. Their covenant has conquered all of their contemporary cultural expectations. Jonathan's going to be loyal to David over his own rights and pursuits of the throne. David is going to be loyal to Jonathan as he shows steadfast love to his descendants. You know, it was natural back then, whenever there was a transfer of power, a new king coming into reign, that oftentimes the family of the previous king that had been conquered or who had lost the throne would either be taken prisoner or killed. And David is going to show a very uncommon loyalty and faithfulness to Jonathan in this. It's a tremendous picture of grace rooted in the confidence of steadfast commitment, steadfast love made through a covenant. This is the the middle point of the story, and you've got to hold tight to what just happened right here because it's all going to come back together in the end, all right? Remember, we're getting to how in our own world of insecurity and uncertainty, we find the security and the peace that our, our hearts desperately long, similar to the world David was in. What's happening right here in this moment is going to be very important to understanding how it happens. But it's a long story. We've got to keep going because I want you to see how it plays out. So they make these covenant renewals and they jump back right there in the field, back to the plan, right? Verse 18. Jonathan says to David, tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, go find the arrows. And if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you're to come. For as the Lord lives, it's safe for you, and there is no danger. So there's the first signal, right? I'll shoot the arrows here, and if I say they're over here, go get them, then you know Saul's intentions towards you are good. It's safe for you to come out from behind the stones and make your way back to the table. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you have to go, for the Lord has sent you away. Remarkable thing he says right there. It's going to be important in the remaining chapters of 1 Samuel when we see David on the run over and over and over again, hiding in caves, running for his life. It's not Saul that sent you away. It's not Saul's madness that you're having to leave. No, the Lord has sent you away. Very important to remember as the story continues on. Verse 23, as far as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. I'm committed. And so the day of the party comes. Plans have been made, been clarified, what's going to happen, how we're going to communicate, how the outcomes are going to be determined. And so the day of the party shows. Verse 24, David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall, back to the wall. I like that. I get that. I don't like to be in restaurants or places where my back is to the door. I don't like people back here when I'm up here. It's very weird. People sitting in the balconies up here, like even my own family was up there at 830. It's very weird. You're behind me. It's, you know, I trust you. I don't think you're going to do anything to me, but it's weird. Saul, you can imagine in his own paranoia that we've seen, he sits with his back to the wall. 
No one's coming in to sneak in on him. And everything else was as it normally is. Jonathan sat opposite, Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. I mean, there could have been any number of reasons for a man like David, who, who was a warrior, to find himself ceremonially unclean. So Saul says, surely, if he's not going to be here without asking my permission, then it must be because he's unclean. It doesn't seem to dawn on Saul that maybe David's not there because you've tried to kill him a handful of times. I mean, this is just a a fruit of the way Saul's sense of power and control has so diluted his mind and his heart that he actually thinks, though he's tried to kill this man a handful of times, he wouldn't dare not show up and take this seat without my permission. I mean, he's become that guy. And you all have a caricature of that guy in your mind. So deluded by power and control, no matter how poorly they treat you, they can't even begin to think that you wouldn't show up simply without their okay. That's Saul. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was still empty. Now here's the thing, there there wouldn't have been a high likelihood that if he was just unclean ceremonially, that he would not have gone through the appropriate channels to render himself clean by this time. So not being there the second day is a little sketchier. And Saul wants an explanation. And so Saul says to Jonathan, his son, over and over again, the emphasis is there because the decision, the weight, what's at stake is so important. Why has not the son of Jesse, doesn't even call David by his name, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Ah, Just as they had devised, Saul's inquiring about David's absence, so now phase two of the plan has to go into act, right? They had said, what if he asks? And they had made a plan for what Jonathan is going to say, right? Now listen, Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. Okay, that's that's what they had said, right? He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he hasn't come to the king's table. Is that the answer that David and Jonathan had agreed on? Jonathan embellished the story just a little bit. I mean, reading it like a human, I I think Jonathan is one of those uncomfortable talkers. Right, the, the Bible is not encouraging or prescribing the deception that's at hand here. It's simply reporting it. And when Jonathan was required to give this answer to his dad, he got uncomfortable. And he said more than he should have. And in saying more than he should have and more than he and David agreed upon, he actually let the cat out of the bag about what's going on. You see, technically right here in Jonathan's answer, when he says that David asks, let me get away and see my brothers, he uses the exact same phrase in Hebrew that means let me escape. The same one used five times in chapter 19 
Speaking of David escaping all of Saul's attempts on his life, the exact same word, the exact same phrase that Saul used with his daughter Michael in chapter 19 when he said, why have you deceived me after she helped David escape so that he has escaped? In his nervous chatter with his dad, Jonathan actually let out the heart of the plan. And so Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Now, what he actually said here isn't repeatable, at least not here, not repeatable in the way it's translated. These are some of the most perverse insults that he could have heaped upon his own son. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. And there again is the heart of what bothers Saul so much. It's our kingdom. And it's clear now, as he says to his son, for as long as David, the son of Jesse, lives, it's clear that he realizes, and he's being very open about it, that he believes David to be the better one that Samuel had spoken about. The man after God's own heart, the man of God's own choosing to whom God was going to give the kingdom. It's very clear that what stands in the way here for what Saul wants and Saul's will and Saul's purpose is David. And so he says, therefore, send and bring him to me for he shall surely die. What a moment for Jonathan. Jonathan. One more time, where is the loyalty, the commitment, the steadfastness going to be? The pressure has been ratcheted up. Now dad knows. He knows about our bond. He knows about our commitment. And he obviously believes this man, David, to be the one to whom the throne is going to be given, who's standing in the way of dad's kingdom and my own ascent to the throne. What's he going to do? I mean, I can't help. He said it last week. I can't help but think of Simon Peter. On the eve of Christ's crucifixion, three times he said, you're going to deny me. No, 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 not me. Each time the pressure came, his commitment faltered. His loyalty leaked out. What of Jonathan? Bring him to me. I'm going to kill him. Verse 32, Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What's he done? Same thing he said back in chapter 19 when he went before Saul, told David, I'm going to go talk to my dad about you. And he came to his dad and said, what's David's sin? What's he done? You've received nothing but blessing from his hand. Last time Saul was like, oh yeah, you're right. I won't touch him. This time Jonathan says, what's he done? And it's almost as if it's in the middle of Jonathan's sentence. Like he's speaking. Like tensions are escalating. What's he done? Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. Not when Jonathan had finished, not when the conversation was over, Jonathan pleading, what, why, why put him to death? What's he done? Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. And in the understatement of the entire chapter, Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And in doing what he has done, Saul has now identified his own son with David. And his own son is now the target of the same spear that Saul sought to pin David to the wall with three times already. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. 
for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. One writer said, Saul depicts a soul depraved by its rebellion against God. He now sees shame and righteous conduct. He applies false guilt to motivate others to sin. And his vision is bounded by the greed of what he and his family might possess. Where David comes to the situation and discord with a confidence in God's goodness and steadfastness and says, what is it in me that's brought this about? What's my sin in this? What do I need to repent of that this might be restored? Saul comes to the discord, completely enslaved by his own sin. Another writer said, I wonder whether Saul would have followed the path if he could have seen the man that sin would make him to be. How little he reckoned on the perverting power of sin once it is embraced or the curse of God's judgment when the Lord should decide to deliver him over to iniquity. I think it's a, a helpful picture in Saul, a helpful reminder even to us in this day of the importance of the writer of the book of Hebrews' words in Hebrews 3 when he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is what we've watched play out in Saul. A hardening of the heart, caught up in the deceitfulness of sin. Well, verse 35 picks up the story the next day. And the episode comes to a close right here in the next few verses. And it's one of the most famous and one of the most beautiful scenes in the story of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and brought with him a a boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. So here they're going to initiate or finish the plan they had made. And, And so the boy ran and Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? That's the signal. Do you remember what that one meant? It means, David, you've got to go. It's not safe. And if you read it like a human, I wonder how hard it was for Jonathan to pull that bow, to load that arrow, to pull that thing back. He knew this is what he had to do because he loved his friend so much, but he knew what it meant. Jonathan and David are not going to see each other again in the story except one more time, and it's not going to be under the best of circumstances. But David, you've got to go. It's not safe. But before David flees, Jonathan is going to risk his own safety to see his friend one more time. Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, don't stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered the arrows, and he came to Jonathan, but the boy didn't know what was going on, and, and Jonathan and David knew the matter. They knew what was happening. Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go and carry them to the city. So there's Jonathan standing out in the middle of the field without a weapon, completely vulnerable. If dad had brought anybody along in the field to follow his son, if dad had been worried or or thought Jonathan was crossing him and he had spies out there, he didn't know, he didn't care. It was now about he and his friend. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of deep friendship. It's an amazing scene. It's not yet done, though. 
Jonathan's going to say something that's going to bring this whole thing together for us in just a moment. Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both us, we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. Go in peace. Again, if you read it like a human, it it seems laughable. David's never going to be able to go home again at this point. Sleep in his bed, eat in his house. He's going to be on the run for his life, looking over his shoulder at every turn. He's going to live in caves. He's going to go and he's going to live in Philistine territory. Wait, can we get to that story? His life is going to be nothing but uncertain and insecure. Go in peace. What kind of benediction is that? It seems humorous. But it will begin to make all the sense in the world as you grip the reality of what covenant commitment and loyalty really means. See, buried in the middle of this story is the key to finding and having security in the midst of insecurity, to finding and having peace in the eye of a hurricane all around you. What was it that gave David the courage to go back to Gibeah back to enemy territory, back to the son of a man trying to kill him, back to the man who is the heir of the throne that he's been anointed for. Where did the confidence come from? Where did the courage come from? It came from David's confidence in the covenant loyalty and commitment that he and Jonathan had made to each other. Over and over again, you hear in the middle of their story, in the middle of that conversation, you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Jonathan saying, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Jonathan making a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. At the heart of this story is the depth of covenant and the promise of steadfast love and commitment. See, every time you see in this story, and you can go back and read it, David and Jonathan asking one another, for him to deal kindly with me. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord. All of those phrases and statements are translations of the same Hebrew word. The same Hebrew word. The word hesed. Hesed doesn't just mean love. It means loyal love. It doesn't just mean kindness. It means dependable kindness. It doesn't just mean affection, but affection that has commitment to it. You see, David and Jonathan both appeal for this kind of steadfast love, this kind of said, because both have reason to believe that they'll receive it from each other because they've made a covenant. The covenant gives the reason that each of them have to look to each other and depend from each other on receiving steadfast love, committed, loyal faithfulness. It's a sidebar. It's a, another sermon for another time. But this is why we understand marriage to be a covenant and not a contract. Covenant is the key for us to stay married in an insecure and uncertain world. All the best habits and all the best practices of relationships. Get your date nights straight. Bring a weekly rose on Friday if that's what your wife likes. Give her Hallmark cards. But you realize that no amount of Hallmark cards can paper over a a life of unwillingness to serve and to love in a steadfast and committed way. 
It's in the midst of uncertainty and insecurity like we live in today, very similar to David's world. It's the firm promise and strong commitment of covenant before God where we find security. The security is in the commitment. The security is in the covenant. David's security in this moment, in the very real world and situation that he was in, is found in the covenant that he has with Jonathan. So in the midst of insecurity, he can go to the one person who he's made a covenant with. And because the covenant was there, David could expect steadfast faithfulness and love. And while you and I can taste a measure of this kind of covenant commitment, steadfastness with one another, we have an even more secure hope to cling to. In David's appeal to Jonathan in the story, you and I have an illustration of what we are to do in our journey through an insecure and uncertain world, to find the security and the peace that our heart clings to and desires. We do what David did. We go to the one with whom we have a covenant. You see, God has always dealt with his people in terms of a covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Moses. He made a covenant with Moses, committing himself to Israel as their God, gave them the law, the stipulations of the covenant, cut a committed covenant with them. I will be yours. You will be mine. I will go before you. I won't leave you. And he gave his people the stipulations of their end of the covenant in the law. And in every single case, the story goes, if you go back and read it, God's people fail to keep God's covenant even though God faithfully keeps his end of the covenant and commitment and promises. Unlike David and Jonathan, who for all intents and purposes in the story seem to keep their covenant with each other, we fail at every step along the way to keep our covenant with God. And so in order to save his people from the consequences and the eternal penalty of their sin, to bring them into the kingdom that he is establishing, God makes a new and a better covenant with his people. And the new covenant that God makes with his people is not dependent on our performance. It's dependent upon his. This is the beauty of the story of the gospel when God sends his son to live a sinless life, to perfectly fulfill the old covenant, the covenant he cut with Moses according to the law. And when Jesus lived the life perfectly, in joy and dependence upon the Father that we were created to live, he then died on the cross, bearing the penalty for our covenant unfaithfulness, for all the ways we failed to keep the covenant. And three days later, when he rose from the dead, he demonstrated God's satisfaction in his keeping of the covenant, and he demonstrated his perfect righteousness. So that by Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, God provides us with a new covenant whereby we can be assured of our forgiveness, of his forgiveness of our sins, of our state of forgiveness with him, and of eternal life in his presence. You see, in order to be saved, all we need to do is grip this covenant as our only hope and promise for salvation. And this covenant that God has made He has secured once for all. It can't be undone. You only need to embrace it as your own. How do you do that? You do it by acknowledging your inability to please God by your own effort and by trusting in the work of Christ on your behalf. 
through the repentance of your own self-righteousness and your own sin, that which Saul was utterly unwilling to do, just owning your inability to keep the covenant law of God and resting in what God has done for you in His Son, you enter into this eternal covenant with the Lord and all of its benefits and blessings. You enter into the promise of the one who is steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, don't forget what David shows us this morning in this story. In confusion, in trouble, in a world of insecurity and uncertainty, to find and to have the security and the peace that our hearts desire and crave, you only have to take yourself back to the one who's made a covenant with you. There is the only recourse in a world of uncertainty. David, as he penned the 27th Psalm, and, and maybe it was this season of his life that was occasion for it, he said, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Friends, have you entered into this new and better covenant that God has made for us through his Son? If not, I would urge you to do so today. He is the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the one who is merciful for all of eternity. He is the one who has cut this covenant with us with the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Will you receive it? Friends, let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond. Father, my heart is always, it's always looking for some kind of trick. My heart is always suspicious. My heart is always looking to, to balance relationships in a way that I can always protect myself and, and come out okay. Lord, there is no greater place of security. There is no greater place of peace there is no greater place of hope and joy than in resting deeply in the covenant loyalty and steadfast love that you have promised and continue to show to us. Lord, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would expose to our hearts this morning exactly as each heart needs. You would expose to us the refuge, the place of peace and security the place of true hope that is ours as we receive your covenant to us by faith in your Son. Let that be sweeter and more desirable than any place we try to run to in this world. Lord, let us know what it is to enjoy the depth of your steadfast love and grace to us in the midst of uncertainty and insecurity in a new way today. We ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, October 25th, 2020 
at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.